Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Sozo Church, you are a Roger Bannister church. How many of you know who Roger Bannister is? You? Roger Bannister was the first guy to break the four-minute mile. Nobody said it could be done. Everybody said it couldn't be done. Nobody thought it could. And Roger said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And the amazing thing about Roger is when he did it, within, within two months, 20 other people had done it too. Because everybody believed it couldn't be done until one person did it. And when one person did it, everybody else went, if they can do it, so can I. So when I say you're a Roger Bannister church, I believe God is going to call you. Though you honor the things that have been passed down to you, you don't have to replicate those things. God is going to call you to do something different that has not been done before. As a matter of fact, people say it can't be done. And when you do it, then suddenly everybody else is going to look and go, okay, if they can do it, so can we. And you're going to have to catch the wind of God on what that is and what that looks for you. But you don't name a church sozo without prophetic repercussions. Which means salvation, wholeness. It's complete wholeness. You understand that it's really radical to believe that a person can be completely whole. Because we're just convinced that you got to carry your scars all through life. And for many of you, that becomes a testimony. But you understand when Jesus was crucified, Isaiah's prophecy over the crucified Messiah was that he was unrecognizable as a human being. That's how badly he was beaten. And when he rose from the dead, one of the questions that we call him doubting Thomas, but actually he's quite a rational thinker. Thomas essentially wants to know, where are your scars? And we say, Thomas said, show me your scars. We're like, wait, what's going on here? Because see, three days ago, Thomas saw his best friend beaten beyond human recognition. Now the man that's standing before him looks a lot different. They, hey, what's up? Like you healed super quick. And Jesus does something interesting. He puts certain scars on display, the ones in his hand, the ones in his feet, the one in his side. He had way more than that, okay? But he only put the ones on display that were necessary in the moment for the purpose of testimony. And wholeness means you have permission to let go of your scars. Now, there will be times when the moment calls for it for you to put them on display for the purpose of testimony. But they don't have to define you. And when John sees Jesus in Revelation, what John sees is the resurrected Christ and he's juggling planets and stars in his hands and when he speaks, swords are coming out of his mouth. He knows it's Jesus, but he knows it not by the scars, but by the glory. Your scars are temporary. Your glory is eternal. And it's by the glory of God that you are to be known. Does that make sense to anybody? Yeah. It's the glory that defines you. It's the presence of God that defines you. Your story is redeemable. It's beautiful. I picture it like, um, we talked about this a little this afternoon, how God can go back and rewrite your past Abraham's wife, Sarah, that we talked about last night, she's actually mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith of Hebrews 11. But when she's spoken of, the Bible mentions in Hebrews 11 mentions no record of her failure. It doesn't say anything about that she heard the word of the Lord, laughed at it. It implies that she heard the word of the Lord and believed it. Now, now I, believe, I believe in the integrity of Scripture, but we have a problem here. Because I know the historical record says otherwise. But the writer of Hebrews in the New Covenant under anointing of the Holy Spirit, 
I think what he's doing here is I believe he's pulling the veil back to show us how heaven sees your life. And that is that it's redeemed so, so completely that it looks like a completely different history was written. If you've ever, if you have like a Mac computer or you work on, on audio, this great little program called GarageBand and other computers will have these, these programs where you can make a song. And to make a song, you'll have different tracks. You'll have your vocal track and you'll have your maybe guitar track, bass track and keyboard tracks and all those things. And so you begin with your vocals and, and then maybe let's say that you have like a drum part in here that kind of messed up and got off tempo. And maybe your vocal is a little pitchy here at this one point in your life. Like your life is kind of like you're recording a song here. And then, you know, the guitar, you popped a guitar string in this one part and oh my goodness, it's disaster. But sneakers in a dryer, you stumble back to it. You picked up the beat and you just kind of moved on. And what ends up happening is the first draft of any song is called a demo. It's a rough cut. And you play that one for your closest friends because, because you know they believe the best about you and they can see beyond all the flaws and all the errors. But what ends up happening is you eventually find a professional mixer and masterer and they take that recording and they master it. And what they have the ability to do is they have the ability to go back at the beginning of the song where you got a little pitchy and kind of work with your vocals a bit to actually redo that section. They just cut that section out and then boom, you got a new section there. They add all these great effects. And when you finally hear the mastered version of your song, it's amazing. And you and I right now are recording the demo. But I believe in eternity, we'll all get to hear the mastered version of the song of our life. And you're going to get to that one part in the song, in the timeline, where you're going to be like, oh no, this is where it all went wrong. And suddenly it's going to be like, wait, what? What happened there? And I think that's the way it was for Sarah. She's listening to the mastered version of her song, and Hebrews is recording a little bit of it, and, and she gets, oh no, the part where the word of the Lord came... And she cringes, but suddenly that part of the recording is different. And I think that's the way God does. I think he is the master technician of the song of our life. And he has the ability to go back and redeem every moment of loss and every moment of pain and every moment of betrayal and every moment of hurt that you have ever felt and ever experienced and every scar that life has inflicted upon you. If he does not have the ability to redeem every moment of your past, then that would make time stronger than the God that created it. And we serve a God who is the Lord of time. (laughs) I don't know if maybe that just makes me happy, but that ought to make somebody in here super happy. (laughs) The fact that God perhaps remembers your life differently than you do. And here's the cool part about that. I don't believe we're going, you say, well, I wish that would be the, if that's true, I wish that'd be the life that I was living as opposed to the life that I have lived. See, that's why I think eternity is so long, because you and I are going to get to experience a fully redeemed existence, the life that we were meant to live had we completely surrendered and said yes from day one. Ephesians 1.4 says this, God chose you to be in Christ, in him from before the foundation of the world. The word foundation is a very violent term, more akin to the term rape. It's not formation. It's actually warping or raping of something, the violation. And the word for world is the word cosmos with a K. It means anything that qualifies to be a creation. So the verse can read like this. God chose you to be in Christ from before the rape of the cosmos. 
if that verse is true, and I believe it is, then here's the ramifications. It means that you were actually found in Christ before you were ever lost in Adam. It means your life has been redeemed more deeply than you can imagine. And this, this season of time, existence, and physicality that we're living in is really, I believe, for us to just learn one thing, and that's to love. Bob Jones said, gets to heaven, first time he dies, comes back. And he said, here was the question that he was asked. Did you learn to love? And suddenly he's back in his body and awake. And all of his preaching changed after that. Because he suddenly realized this entire existence is simply so you and I can go to school to learn that one thing. By the time Jesus rolls around on the scene, there's over 600 commandments that have been added since Exodus 19. And Jesus goes, a new commandment I give you. A new one? We're going to add another one, huh? Yeah, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. You watch me love you. Now go do that. And if this life teaches us anything, it's that, that one, one thing. I feel very strongly tonight mm, to talk to you about a character in the Bible that I don't often really talk about. And I may find that I'm the only one that's really interested in him. Um, but it's a simple story. I want to show you some things in it maybe you've never seen before. And it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's the life of a guy named David, but David's not the character that I want to focus on. To get to the character I want to bring up tonight, I'm going to have to kind of wade through David's life a bit. The prophet Samuel comes to a man named Jesse and says, hey, one of your kids is about to be king, and so bring your sons before me. And Jesse does. He brings all of his sons before him except for one. And, uh, and one after the other, they're rejected. And those of you who grew up in church and know the Sunday school story, you know that finally Samuel says, is this all you got? And Jesse goes, actually, no, there's one more. Well, go get him. We're not sitting down, he says, until, until you bring him. And so everybody just hangs out until Jesse brings David. Why didn't Jesse bring David before the prophet? Well, in Psalms, we get a, a picture, a, a little bit of a picture of David's inception. And uh, he says, I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. The picture we get is actually that David was an illegitimate son. And uh, it's not that David was, was talking about some sort of like sin nature in him. That's not what he was talking about. He's actually literally talking about the way in which he was brought into the world. And we can know this by a couple of different ways. The first one being that Jesse didn't put David in front of the man of God. Why would you not put all of your sons in front of the man of God when the man of God who picked the previous king of Israel says to you, one of your sons will be king? You'd have to be pretty ashamed of a kid to leave him out of that lineup. And when David actually is anointed in the sight of his brothers, it doesn't increase his brother's respect for David at all. As a matter of fact, they make fun of David solidly throughout the entire story. Anytime you see the brothers, there's a massive amount of dishonor and disrespect. And the third reason, I think, is because if, if your kid just got anointed as king, more than likely, you would say, okay, get me the best tutors, get me the, get, get me the secret service to surround this kid so we can teach him the ways of, that he's supposed to know so he can grow into that place of royalty. Jesse is so disgusted with God's choice that he literally says to David, get back out to the field, where David who is anointed by the man of God to be the next king over Israel, is now going to go back to the worst job in the family. How dishonoring to the word of the Lord do you have to be to send your kid back alone 
out into danger. How do we know there's danger? Because there's, there's lions and there's bears. And Jesse sends him alone back out to the field. It's interesting because David has to kneel before the prophet. And the prophet does two really important things. He speaks a word over him. And David hears the voice of the old prophet declare over him that he's going to be king. Many of you have had a call of God on your life and you've heard the word of the Lord over your life declare a destiny over you. And immediately you think that you're just going to be launched right into ministry. And next thing you know, you're back at Chick-fil-A going, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. And you're like, this is not the ministry that I had in mind. <laughs> no offense if you work Chick- Chick-fil-A. God bless Chick-fil-A. Christian chicken all day long. <laughs> Closed on Sunday. So here's the word of the prophet. Speak a destiny over his life. And the second thing that happens is when any king would be anointed, he literally would be anointed. As David, a young boy, is there, he feels the oil pour down over his head. And that holy anointing oil just flowed down over him. And he could feel it. He could hear the words of the prophet declare his destiny. He felt the oil pour over his body. And he knew he's destined to be king. And then the authority figure that he's under at the time, his father Jesse says, back out to where you were. Got to be weird. But David shows no signs of bitterness at the assignment. As a matter of fact, he gets back out to the field and he, and he learns to do two things really well. When nobody's watching, first thing he does is becomes a worshiper. And the second thing he does is he becomes a fearless warrior. Those two things are not opposed, by the way. And so David, out in the field, becomes a master at playing an instrument, and he becomes a marksman with a sling. He's got a lot of time on his hands, being alone, out in the field, tending, as his brothers call them, a few pointless sheep. Can I say this for those of you who know you've got a call of God on your life and yet you're back out in the field or you're in a position in life where nobody's watching? How you steward your life when nobody's watching is what prepares you to stand in victory and character when everybody's watching. Right? One day, Israel goes to war with the Philistines as they just did all the time. And and this time it's different. Goliath of Gath is down there taunting the armies of Israel and, and, and he says, let's just do this mano y mano, man to man. I'm gonna fight one of your guys and whoever wins, that'll just be it for the whole team, all right? Nobody wants to face him. David shows up and he's assigned to bring lunch. And he looks down at the giant and says, hey, who's this uncircumcised Philistine defies the armies of the living God? Just give us, give us the, the basket of sandwiches and get out of here. You gotta, you gotta hear the brothers like, oh my goodness, you gotta be kidding me. Hey, is there nobody here that wants to, are you serious? I'll take this guy on, I got it. And it's such an audacious claim that David makes that it makes it all the way to the ears of the king. And now David stands before Saul. He finds himself in the presence of Saul. And Saul says, um, so uh, how do you know you can do this? And David tells two mind-melting stories. I'm out in the field one day, and uh, a lion came to take one of the flock. And uh, so I chased after him, and I caught him by his head, and I punched him until he died. It's literally what he says. <laughs> okay, now look, I think I had a pretty good, I got a, I got a relatively decent job ethic, I think, work ethic. But if I'm tending sheep and a lion comes to take a sheep, I'm like, hey, 
circle of life, man. Lions got to eat too, all right? Have a sheep. We'll make more. It's fine. It's all right. It's all good. Take it out of my pay. I mean, David literally chases down the lion. We show no weapons in this story. He chases down the lion. He grabs it by the face and he punches it until it dies. And before Saul can even react to this story, David comes up with another one. He goes, yeah, and then, and then after that one day, a bear came and uh, he took one of the lambs out of the flock and I chased him down and I caught him by his beard and I punched him till he died too. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll go down the same way. Okay. Think about that. You say, wow, David's cocky. No, 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 he's not cocky, he's confident. Cockiness looks a lot like confidence and confidence looks a lot like cockiness and insecure people will always see confidence as cockiness no matter what you do, right? So that's why humility is such a big deal, right? Mix your humility and your confidence together and you won't be so obnoxious. So Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Why is David chasing lions and chasing bears? Because he heard the word of the Lord and he felt the oil. And he had so much confidence, not in his ability, but in the word of the Lord speaking destiny over his life that he knew all that. I just have to go up there and just, you know, get that sheep back from that. He can't touch me. He's not going to hurt me. What can he do? A lion and a bear is not going to kill the word of the Lord here. And so he looks at the giant exactly the same way. And Saul says, okay. And so a few things happen. He tries to be on the armor. It doesn't work. And, and so finally he goes down just in his shepherd's, you know, shepherd's garb. And all he's got is his sling. That's it. Picks up five smooth stones. Why does he do that? Well, the Bible tells us Goliath has brothers. He either has three brothers and a very big dad, or he's got four brothers. But the deal is, we know that in the Bible that there were five giants all related. And so David's not, you know, figuring I'm going to need five bullets from my gun. He's saying five giants, five rocks. Super simple. That's confidence. <clears throat> so David literally runs at the giant, trash talking him the whole time loads up a rock in the sling and lets it fly. And I think the Holy Spirit just behind. I think it's the breath of God actually gets behind it. And that rock just drops the giant right through the forehead. You understand the breath of God's a big deal. There's three times in the Bible where you see the breath of God. The first one is in Genesis when God makes man. The other one in the old, in the new Testament is, is uh, when Jesus resurrects from the dead and he breathes on the church and says, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, the one other time you see the breath of God in the Bible It says that he parted the waters of the Red Sea by the blast of his nostrils. In other words, we think it was a big deal for Jesus or for God to part the Red Sea. He did it literally by blowing his nose. (laughs) Just teaching the Bible. I think that's funny. It's the humor of God. It's, It's like, hey, guys, watch this. I just think that's hilarious. So, breath of God gets behind that rock. Boom, giant drops. Now, we know the giant has an armor bearer. He's nowhere in the story at this point. I imagine he's standing there and he's holding maybe the sword, the shield, the spear, whatever. And uh, the minute he sees his boss, you know, hit the ground, he's like, that's it, I'm out of a job. He clocks out and he's gone. So we have no idea where he goes. But David goes up there and he picks up the giant sword that the armor bearer left behind. And you can see just the picture of him just putting his foot up on the giant's chest. And he cuts the giant's head off with it, which is pretty crazy. And now you see the picture of young David, the shepherd boy, holding the head of the giant up. And he's like, yeah. And and Israel's like, we won. Anybody know what he does after that? Jumps in a chariot with the head of Goliath and he rides to Jerusalem. And as he's coming into Jerusalem... The, the song of the day is Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, here's an interesting, fun, fun bit of trivia, maybe. Now, it's not a Bible fact, but it's a theory of mine. This is one of those theories we'll figure out when we get to heaven, all right? What did he do with the head of the giant? 
We don't really know for sure exactly what he did, but legend has it, Jewish legend has it, that he went and buried it in a hill that came to be known as the place of the skull or Golgotha for Goliath of Gath. Ironically, the same hill that Jesus Christ would be crucified on. Isn't it fascinating the parallel between David's victory over the giant and Jesus' victory over the giant of sin? Because what David did is he was one man who fought one victory and, and, and won one gigantic victory for everybody. And nobody else had to do a thing. One guy fought one battle and got one victory for all of, all of them. What does Jesus do on the cross? One man fights one battle over the giant of sin and wins a victory that all of us get to participate in. That's awesome. Woo. I love that. <laughs> But David's not king yet. As a matter of fact, he gets close to the throne. He's actually in the throne room with the king. And Saul just doesn't like this guy. And he starts throwing spears at him. And David has to run. The guy whose job he's eventually supposed to take wants him dead. And David goes for many years. Knowing he's heard the voice of the Lord. This is for somebody in the room tonight. I don't know why. I had so many other things I felt like I wanted to talk about. But I felt like there was somebody in the room tonight who's got a call of God on your life and you're so discouraged because you feel like it's taken forever for that call to come about. And I want you to see David's life. He had a call of God from a young child. He, He knew his assignment and he heard the word of the Lord and he felt the oil. And yet there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle until one day. Saul dies. And when Saul dies, Saul and Jonathan, a few of Saul's sons die. There's only one of Saul's sons left, and his name is Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth takes over the throne. And, and a civil war erupts. And so now David is sort of king. He's crowned the people's champion, but he's not officially the king really yet. Until one night, Ishbosheth is murdered by some of his own men. It's weird because David comes into the throne, but he doesn't come into it easily. And he can't take it for himself. There were moments throughout David's life where he had the opportunity to kill the current king and fulfill the word of the Lord in his own strength. And he refuses to do it. And some of you have an opportunity, may have opportunities in front of you to step into your destiny, but you know it's going to be in your own strength. And you know the timing's not right, but you know the word of the Lord, and I'm supposed to go after it. And the right thing at the wrong time can become the wrong thing. And David is absolutely committed to letting God be the one that puts the crown on his head in his time. But the story of David's fulfillment of his destiny has two major components to it. One of them is getting to the throne. And the other one is that the story begins after he feels the crown on his head. Now he's just getting started. But everything leading up to the throne has been a huge test. And here's the thing. David will actually undergo a a, a, a wild, transformative, new covenant revelation experience with God where he has so many new covenant things that he says, like, get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's just make a tabernacle and we're just going to have 24-7 worship in front of this thing. Somebody had to have said, you know, we just read about in, in the law how we're supposed to treat this thing. And actually that violates the law. David's like, I don't care. I want 24 worship in front of this thing. And in the book of Amos, God goes, you know what? In the last days, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. In other words, David literally violated the law and God goes, I like that. You caught my heart. It's like you doubled down on wanting more of my presence than I said was even available. I told you how much you could have. And you said, no, I think I can have more. And God went, touche. Nicely done. (laughs) David, as he's pursuing the throne, 
He has choices that he makes. And there are a lot of times where even after and before he comes, becomes king, once he gets power, he chooses often to use that power to overtake his enemies when God tells him not to. It's almost like when he actually steps into his destiny, even though he's in that place of position of authority, he doesn't, he, he can't now stop listening to the voice of the Lord. See, everything in his life, all the way up to where he feels the crown on his head, is to train him to walk in radical obedience to the voice of the Lord. But once he gets the power and the authority and he's walking in it, for some reason, he stops listening to the voice of the Lord on some really key occasions. And one day, David says, God, I want to build a temple for you. And, and God says, nice idea. Not my idea, your idea, but I like you. We're going to go with that, except one thing. You don't get to do it. What? Yeah. So your hands are too filled with blood. You're a man of war. A temple built to me is going to be built by someone who's a man of peace. That'll be your son. He'll do it. Now, I want to just, just hear this, because those of you who know you've got a call of God on your life, you felt the oil and you heard the voice. This is a huge, huge moment. This is a big point I want to get across tonight, and that is this. God will take personal responsibility to fulfill your destiny, but he is not obligated to fulfill all your dreams. Ooh, it got quiet in here. The dream on God's heart is I want to build a temple for you. But how he stewarded his life between the oil and the throne determined whether or not his dream was going to be fulfilled. It's not that the dream was wasted. It was just given to someone else. God will take personal responsibility to fulfill the destiny over your life. But what God wants you to do is live in such a way where you cultivate a lifestyle of character and integrity between the voice and the oil and the crown and the throne. To the point where not only do you step into your destiny, but you don't forfeit the dreams that are on your heart as well. He will fulfill your destiny. But it's obedience to his voice that will qualify you to walk out the dreams that he's given you. I'm not talking about works. I'm talking about training. You think God's done creating you? But his creation of you is not a forced control. It's an invited voice. You and I simply respond to that voice to say yes. You say, oh my goodness, Bill. What have I done? I think I messed up. I, I feel like that's it. I have no chance. Here's the beauty of the new covenant. David lived under an old covenant. We live under a new covenant. And the new covenant actually baptizes you and I in innocence. I spoke about this a little bit this afternoon. But the baptism of innocence it's going to take us into the Bible character that I actually want to talk about today. And his name is Mephibosheth. Everybody say the word Mephibosheth. Aren't you glad that your parents did not name you Mephibosheth? Ladies? <clears throat> really? Mephibosheth. What a name. Mephibosheth is the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. And David and Jonathan had become so close that they were like brothers. Matter of fact, they get together one day and they decide they're going to cut covenant between each other and they're going to vow to actually care for each other's family. If anything happens to you, I'll take care of your house. If anything happens to me, you take care of my house. Da, 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 da. And they're like, man, these guys are like, we're going to take care of one another. We're, our, our friendship is going to go beyond the point of death is essentially what they're saying. David, when he becomes king... Something incredible happens because he forgets the covenant that he made with Jonathan for a time. As a matter of fact, when, when David becomes king, Mephibosheth is just a child. And Mephibosheth, being a child of royalty, running around the palace, having more money than he knows what to do with, having all of the servants that he knows what to do with, having everything he could ever want. Suddenly, when David becomes king, when Saul dies, Mephibosheth's nurse picks him up to flee to the mountains with him. Why does she do this? Well, because when a king, when a dynasty was overthrown and a king's family line was taken out and a new king stepped in so that nobody from that family line would ever rise up in revenge and try to take the throne back. It was just customary that all of the king's family and all of the king's servants would just be wiped out. 
And so Mephibosheth's nurse thinks, oh no, this guy's in danger. He's royalty under Saul. And she flees to the mountains. As she's taking off and running, she falls, trips and falls. And little Mephibosheth breaks both of his feet and they never mend right. And so he's lame all of his days. I want you to understand what a raw deal this kid gets. Some of you feel like David. I got a call of God in my life, but it feels like I'm just not getting it fulfilled. And it seems like time's going on. I'm wasting my time when I'm supposed to be whatever God's called you to be. But then others of you might feel like Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is one of those people that he's, no, he didn't ask for this. He went from being royalty and healthy to being a lame orphan in one second. Overnight. And he's going to stay that way for a long time. As a matter of fact, it's so long that one day David is just hanging out in the palace thinking, what can I put on my to-do list today? And he calls his servant Ziba and he says, Ziba, is there anybody of the house of Saul left that I might show kindness to? And Ziba goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, he lives down the road in a town called Lodabar. And David goes, bring him to me. Now, Ziba doesn't know exactly what's going to happen here. He heard the word kindness somewhere in there, but he's really bad at delivering this message. And so Mephibosheth gets a knock on the door, and it's the king's servant. And the king's servant says, the king wants to see you. And Mephibosheth immediately thinks, that's it. I've spent years in hiding. I mean, he's gotten married. He's got kids now. That's how long this has gone on. See, David forgot the promises and the covenants that he made when he wasn't king. And when he had the power to fulfill them, he had forgotten them until one day his memory kind of gets jogged and now he wants to be kind. And Mephibosheth comes before the king, lame feet and everything. And he bows before the king. And now we're in 2 Samuel 9. From 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 9 is the scope of this story. In 2 Samuel 9, the story of Mephibosheth goes like this. He comes before the king and he says, behold your servant. Now what he is preparing to do is to be killed, to die. Because in his mind, that's his place. Does he deserve that? No. He was born into royalty and something happened that he had no control over. And now he's simply resigned himself to his fate. And that's the thing. When you have faced such a trauma in your life that you think God has forgotten you and you think that there's no hope and you think that you're just, that's it. I'm just a social security number in the United States. And that's, that's, I'm just, I'm just going to just, the best I can do for God is just come to church pay my tithes, do my work, and be still and quiet, and just hide out. Which a lot of pastors would be super happy for, but I think we're entering into a day where we want to see sons and daughters restored, right? And Mephibosheth bows before the king, and the king looks at him and says, I'm not going to kill you here. Hey, hey. As a matter of fact, I want to restore to you everything that was lost. I'm going to give you all of the land that your grandfather Saul had. I'm going to give you everything that your dad had. Matter of fact, my servant Ziba over here, who used to work for your grandpa, he's actually going to now be your servant. All his kids are going to work for you. And not only that, but every single day, you're going to come and eat at my table as one of my sons. I'm making a seat for you at the table. And Mephibosheth is blown away. And he in a sense says, hey, what? And this is such an important scripture. He says, who am I that the king would show kindness to a dead dog? That's what he says of himself. A dead dog like me. This is how he feels about himself. He's a grown man with a wife and kids, and he has carried his entire life the mentality of a lame orphan. Maybe way in the back of his mind, he can remember the moments when he ran through the palace free and had no cares in the world. And then overnight, he loses his family, and he loses everything. He loses his health, and he becomes a lame orphan. Now he's carried that, knowing that he's marked for death his whole life, and his perception of his identity is just a dead dog. And now he sits before the king and says, 
What, what kind of kindness is this, that you would show this kind of kindness to a dead dog like me? David doesn't even acknowledge that identity. He turns to Zeba and says, you're going to work in his field. You guys are going to make money for him so he never has to lift a finger the rest of his life. He's going to have income. He's going to have blessing. He's going to be restored. He's one of the king's sons. Why is he doing this? Because of a covenant that was made before he was even born. If you were to get before God right now, you might have suddenly a, a, a sheer shock or feeling of terror at all the places where you failed, haven't followed through, haven't done the right thing, sinned against God, done something that's just disappointed him, done something that's made him upset or angry. You think that he's just turned his back on you and you think, God, what, what, what am I, what are you, are you going to, are you going to cast me away? And then he pours out kindness. And he restores the royalty and the identity that you thought you had lost forever. And you may say, God, how is it that you would show kindness to a dead dog like me? And you hear the words of your father say, well, it's because of a covenant that was made before you were even born. And the ramifications of that new covenant are that you have an identity and it doesn't matter what you do, you don't change the way that I see you. In the story of the prodigal son, when Jesus tells this story, he's telling this story to an orphaned people who've forgotten who their father is. And the way he tells the story is this. A certain man has two sons. The younger of them says to the father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Well, that's not what it says. I mean, actually, it does. Because you don't ask for an inheritance while somebody's still alive. Because an inheritance comes to you after somebody dies. Think of the dishonor in asking your living parent, sure like my inheritance now, and not to go out and make good investments. I want to go out and waste it in the worst way as possible. And the father, knowing full well what the son is asking, he actually allows his son to take that journey without condemnation. This is Jesus telling the Israelites this story. And, and, and you got to understand how offensive this is because they don't think that God would ever do anything like this. And here is God, here's the father saying, okay, I'm granting you what you asked for. Why? Because he has a high value for freedom. Do you understand? Just because you're free to do a thing doesn't mean it's to be done. But how many of you know, if you go out of here tonight, you decide to commit some major sin, more than likely an angel's not going to come up and slap your hand and go knock it off. God gives you the freedom to make a choice, even as his child, but he gives you the Holy Spirit to teach you how to manage your freedom. And how to steward your freedom so that you walk in both the dreams and the destiny that he has for your life. The son goes out and he squanders the wealth. And now he's at the end of himself. He's in a hog pen. He says, I'm going back home, but I can only be a servant. That's as good as it gets. And he comes home. My favorite line in the story, while the father saw him a great way off. Well, he's a great way off. The father sees him coming and the father runs. He doesn't have to look to find the robe and the ring. They're already ready because even though the son tried not to be the son, the father never stopped being a father. And before the son can even get his repentant speech out of his mouth, the father tackles him, kisses him, puts the ring on him, puts the robe on him, and says, fire up the grill and get the musicians going. Party time. Party time? <laughs> the older son pulls dad aside. And he says, man, all these years I've served you. I've been faithful to your house. I've done it all right. Here's the line. I never saw this line until like a month ago. I've seen this story, preached on this story a thousand times. Never seen this line before. I'm almost seeing something the Bible knew. I've never seen before. And I'm thinking, where did they write that? Here's the line. This is what the older son says. Not once have you ever given me a goat 
so I could make merry with my friends. Now with that line, we get a fresh revelation. And that is, it wasn't just the younger son that wanted to party. The older son did too. You know what they had in common? Neither one of them wanted dad anywhere around. Both of them wanted to party. Neither one of them wanted dad to be invited. And you know what dad has just always wanted the whole time? He wants to dance with his kids. And when the younger son says, give me my money now, the father must know something. And that is, that hog pen will teach this kid something he's never going to learn here in the house. It's actually going to bring him all the way around the backside of the desert to the truth of his identity so he can see how much he's loved and how much he's accepted and how much he's forgiven. And maybe when he comes home, maybe then he'll dance with me. The older son, he wants to party too. He stays in the father's house, but he just doesn't want dad anywhere involved. And all dad wants to do is dance with his son. That's it. Some of you think that you're out, out of sorts with God to the point where when a celebration happens or when joy hits the room, you're not qualified to feel it because all you can think of is the areas where you failed. I'm going to give you a real simple challenge. Ask God this question sometime. God, have you ever been disappointed in me? Don't do this while you're driving, by the way. <laughs> right before I came here tonight, I uh, had dinner with a friend. And uh, he said, remember years ago, he says, we were in a meeting. And you said this question. You said, ask God the question, have you ever been disappointed in me? And he said, you, you said, don't do that while you're driving. He goes, well, I was driving. And, and he said, and I didn't actually get the question out of my mouth. I only began to ask the question. And I was suddenly so undone by the love of God that I had to pull my car off to the side of the road. He says, it's kind of like I bent down to, to drink out of a water, a water fountain, and it turned into a fire hydrant. And you suddenly begin to realize, oh, I'm that forgiven? Okay, you know what? I'm not going to bring that up ever again. I'll never talk about that again. Can I tell you? God's never been disappointed in you. Dad's never been disappointed in you. The mistakes you've made and the failures that you can point to and that you remember. He wasn't absent from you. He never stopped being your father. But he's ready to fire up the barbecue. And he's ready to crank up the music. And the robe and the ring is waiting. Your destiny and your royalty are absolutely certain. All he wants to do is dance with his kids. Whew. One more story. The prophet Hosea gets a word from the Lord one day. Weird word. Strange word. Hosea, I want you to marry that woman over there. Yeah, God, uh, but she's a prostitute. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> Go ahead and marry her. And just heads up, she's going to keep her night job. And, uh, and when she gets pregnant, whether they're yours or not, you know, you're going to be a father to these kids. And uh, name them whatever you want. Well, Hosea doesn't have fun with this. I just want you to know. How do we know that? Because in Hebrew culture, you name kids according to your mood. All of his kids have really depressing names. Very dark. And finally, Hosea's wife, Gomer, <laughs> which may have had something to do with her self-esteem, just saying, the name. Just. Gomer finds herself in a human trafficking situation where she's being publicly auctioned off. Imagine, guys, you Take a trip downtown. You don't know where your wife's been. She's been out for days, and you know what she does. 
Someday you get, you get downtown and there's a public auction going off where they're auctioning off prostitutes as slaves. In other words, they're no good as prostitutes anymore. Now they'll just be slaves. They'll just work. And you look up there and you see your bride. Your bride. And Hosea cuts through the crowd. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's a real story. This prophet of God cuts through the crowd. And he looks and he sees her. And he thinks, how much money do I have? And he grabs everything he's got. And he bids on his own wife and buys her back. And when he takes her by the hand down off that auction block, he makes an interesting statement. He says, from now on, you'll never go out again. And it's not a statement of control because if he could have controlled her, how many of you know he would have done it from day one? He gave her all of the freedom he could. And now she's come to the end of herself. And why does she misuse her freedom? She doesn't know who she is. As much as he says, I love you, as much as he says, I'm devoted to you, and he says, I do, and here's the ring, and here, she keeps going out. Because in her mind, her worth is only based upon that identity, and she can never rise above it until she's bought back at a price. And when she's bought back, he looks at her and goes, now you'll never go out again. Why can he say that? Because only then does she realize how deeply she's loved and how deeply she's valued and how much he is willing to sacrifice of himself to purchase back his bride. And some of you think, I have messed up so bad, God's not going to want me in a perfect heaven. God's not going to want me in his holy presence. Maybe you feel like you've been on the auction block. And we've already gone from, from oil and word of the prophet that somebody's going to be a king all the way over here to a prostitute who doesn't think she's worth anything. I just want you to hear the word of the Lord. You're innocent. Innocent. That's grace. Grace restores the standard of innocence. Grace restores that innocence that we lost. Grace restores the innocence that we threw away. Grace restores the innocence that we squandered in a moment of dishonor. Grace restores the innocence that we, we lost in a moment of blindness. Grace restores the innocence that was stolen from us. Lame feet, orphan. Grace restores the innocence. It's the power of the grace of God. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know how valued you are? Do you know how worthy you are of the oil that we were feeling in the room earlier? I want to read something to you. This is a book that Tracy wrote a few years ago when she had a car accident. And she uh, had some internal injury that caused recurring, just ongoing chronic pain in her body. And uh, we had everybody pray for her. But you know, it's totally legal to actually pray for yourself. And... Uh, God was teaching her something really incredible and valuable. Normally I have her read this. Do you mind if I read it tonight? Is that cool? Because um, I feel like this is for all of you tonight. God started giving her a prayer. She put it in a book called Soul Reformation, Wholeness for the Body. God started giving her a prayer, a line at a time. And eventually it came to the point where it was a pretty long prayer. And, and she felt led to pray it over herself daily and actually speak it aloud over herself. And she actually started to strengthen herself and encourage her own heart. And one day she prayed this prayer and realized there was no pain in her body and it's never come back. 
stewarding our freedom sometimes means that to step into that place of innocence, we actually have to put the word of the Lord on our tongue and stop cursing ourselves. Prophetic declaration is actually what you speak over yourself. When you're cursing yourself, it'd be great if you turned into a blessing because then you can start feeling the oil and nobody else has to be around. You don't have to wait until the next you know, conference to come along. You could be sitting in your room and all of a sudden you just start speaking the word of the Lord, prophesying over yourself, then you feel the oil and then you have to call in late to work. I know how that works. All right. I feel like God wants to heal body, soul, spirit, heart, and soul in this conference. I want to make a declaration over you guys tonight. Body, your ability to heal is greater than your ability to become sick. I want to put your hand over your heart for this. You are more susceptible to abundant life than you are to illness. You are more inclined to be healthy than to be unwell. You are more vulnerable to wholeness. You are more receptive and responsive to the goodness that exists in the earth. You are wide open to blessing. Now, lie down and rest in the bubbling joy of the Father that rises up within you. Every cell is being regenerated. They're taking on a healthy form. You're being filled with a spirit of hope and joyful expectation. Body, soul, spirit, and mind. This is what you were made for. Laughter, joy, love, and purity. This is your destiny. You reflect all that is good and all that is right. You look like your father. Do you know how forgiven you are? Do you know how worthy you are? So Lord, I pray that tonight, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would do a quick work in this room that goes beyond even the Bible stories that I shared, that goes beyond even the revelations and the principles that these stories contained. And God, would you invade every story represented in this room tonight with a fresh revelation of your love. That love that displaces all anxiety and puts us at rest. That love that restores our innocence and with it restores the joy of salvation. That love that baptizes us in the oil of joy for gladness. The word gladness is the Greek word agaliasis. It means extreme joy. Actually, it's even more than that. It's offensive joy. It's a joy that's so offensive you can't even wrap your mind around it. One day, I'm in a Walmart. I'm in a Walmart in Maui, and I'm standing there, and I'm thinking about joy. I'm thinking about the fullness of joy. I'm meditating on it, and I'm not even saying anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm thinking about, have I ever experienced the fullness of joy? I've had little moments of it, but I've experienced the fullness of it. God, teach me your joy. Teach me the way of agaliasis, extreme gladness, the molten joy of heaven. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking all these thoughts. And all of a sudden, the lady that's in front of me in the line starts going like this. <laughs> it's weird. It's awkward. I'm looking at her like, what are you doing? And pretty soon, she's, she turns around. She's like, Idea. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's nothing funny. I don't know what's happening. And I'm just sitting there staring at her. And I feel the Holy Spirit say to me, pay attention. Because when you're in my presence, what you meditate on will manifest around you. If we want to fill the world with glory, better start meditating on the things of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness comes because of what Christ has done. Peace comes because of who Christ is. Joy comes because that's what he brings to strengthen you. Joy is a third of the kingdom. And so maybe you've gone through so much that you don't feel like you're worthy of experiencing the joy of God. I feel like tonight the Lord would say over you, you have permission to laugh again. You have permission to laugh like an innocent person that's just been declared free. 
You have, a, you have permission to laugh like somebody that was in prison and just saw the doors open and their chains fall off. You have permission to laugh like somebody who doesn't have to worry about what they got in the bank. So stand with me all over this room tonight. Jesus, thank you for your kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. How many of you know the kingdom is your destiny? Come on, how many of you know the kingdom is your destiny? Let me see hands. How many of you know tonight, without a shadow of a doubt, you can say, I know the kingdom of God is my destiny. Now, how many of you, put your hands down, how many of you have dreams? And you know those dreams are things that God's placed in your heart. Let me tell you what the new covenant does. Not only does it ensure your destiny, but it can restore your dreams. So if you got dreams that you haven't seen fulfilled yet, then let your hands leave their sides and put them up. Lightning never strikes a rod hanging on the ground. Right? So Lord, I pray tonight for a restoration of dreams. That everything that's been lost to be restored, that even right now, God, you're going back and remastering the song of our life. Removing those moments that have mired us in regret, that have anchored us down, that have kept us from soaring in your spirit. God, that have kept us from feeling worthy to dance with you. God, we know all you want to do is just dance with your kids. You're just a good dad who wants his kids to come home. Lord, we want the same thing. So Lord, make us a people that put your goodness on display to an unfaithful world. And says we're willing to sacrifice to see you come off that auction block and come home so that you know that you're the bride and that you're still chosen and that you're loved more than you ever thought possible. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can we just lift up a a thanksgiving? Just in your own voice, just thank him. Just in your own voice, thank him. Just in your own voice, thank him tonight. Just in your own voice, thank him. And just let the oil pour over you tonight. Let that innocence pour over you tonight. Let the innocence pour over you tonight. Jesus, I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the reckless grace of God. This is the reckless grace of God that receives us, that justifies us, that calls us sons and daughters, that says, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. Would you turn to the person next to you on either side of you and just say, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home to the Father's house. Welcome to the dance, welcome to the dance. Welcome to the dance. You belong. You belong. Turn to him and tell him, you belong. Oh, no, they, they don't believe you. Turn again, tell him, no, you belong. I'm telling you, you belong. You belong. You belong. You belong. One more thing, one more thing. One more thing. And one second. One more thing. I feel strongly led to do this because I feel like some of you say, Bill, don't we do that after we say a prayer? <clears throat> when the woman caught in adultery comes to Jesus and she's released and freed and forgiven, Jesus says this to her. I don't condemn you. Now go sin no more. It's not the way that we would have done it. We would have said, we're going to watch your life And if you don't sin anymore, then we will not condemn you. Our lack of condemnation will be the reward for your good behavior. That's not what Jesus does here. Jesus goes, I'm going to go ahead and just not condemn you. In your guilt, in your present situation, I'm going to go ahead and just no condemnation. Now, based upon how free you are, go sin no more. Right? So I'm going to lead you in a prayer tonight. 
Maybe you've never prayed to receive Christ into your life. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. And tonight, everything I've been talking about to you is a foreign concept. Can I tell you, nothing I've said tonight can be understood here. It's got to be understood by the Spirit. And the Spirit's unlocked by a heart that's willing to say, Jesus, I receive you. By faith, I just receive your grace and say yes. Nothing you get from God will come through striving. It only comes through surrender. So tonight, I want you to pray a prayer with me. Maybe you've said this prayer a thousand times or a prayer like it a thousand times. But tonight, we're going to do this as one voice, as one body. Right? Tonight, just put your hands out in front of you like this. And as one voice, would you say this from your heart? Lord Jesus, by faith, right now, I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your salvation. And I say thank you for forgiving all of my sin, for making me innocent in your sight, for giving me your love. And I receive your love. I receive your purity. I receive your holiness. And right now, I'm your child, now and forever. Woo, Jesus. Yay. <laughs> Woo. Wow. Listen, listen, listen. Tonight, tonight, if that, was, if that was the first time you've ever done that from your heart, and you're suddenly feeling that oil that everybody else has been feeling in the room tonight, and you're like, whoa, that's what this is. I'm feeling something going on. This is pretty cool. The fire of the Holy Spirit. Oh, say this with me. Holy Spirit, fill all of me with all of you. Awaken my senses to come alive to you. Holy Spirit, fill me now. pray that this night would be a defining moment for many in this room. As we just find ourselves at rest in your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. One more time. Can we just give him an offering of praise tonight? Let's worship. Let's worship.